0: I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and I was sent to the principal's office when I was eight years old for dropping a dead snake I found on the playground down the back of a girl's jumper.
1: I'm Garrick, and I actually attended a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles concert one time.
0: Well, according to the New Testament Gospels, the death of Jesus was accompanied by all sorts of signs and wonders, darkness, earthquakes, the curtain in the Jewish temple being torn in two. But is there any evidence outside the New Testament that any of these events really did happen? Well, as it turns out, there may be. And that's what we'll be looking at today in the first half with New Testament scholar Dr. Rob Plummer. And then Garrick and I go looking for divine truth in the song American Pie. If you're interested in making connections between your faith and history, you will not want to miss this episode. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig
1: for truth in rock and roll. Garrick Bailey here today with my co-host Timothy Paul Jones and Rob Plummer. Dr. Plummer is professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and the author of many books, including Paul's Understanding of the Church's Mission. He's a graduate of Duke University and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. A question for you, Dr. Plummer. Is Duke
2: basketball the representation of pure evil? (laughs) well people always feel jealous and uh disdainful towards those that are greater than them (laughs) okay i've got nothing to add to that
1: i think he's wrong
0: well it's perfectly plausible of course to believe something to be true even if it's only reported in a single source in other words more sources don't make something more true at the same time, the more sources report a particular event, the more plausible it is to have happened. And when it comes to events that accompanied the death of Jesus, the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, claim that the sun was darkened, the earth shook, and the veil in the temple was torn in two. This last claim, a curtain inside the temple being torn in two, is one of the most incredible of these signs. Rob, can you explain for our listeners first off, just so they understand what this curtain was
2: and what why can't we go see it today? Yes, I'm happy to speak about that. It's actually quite debated what curtain it was, believe it or not. You'd think this is pretty obvious, but, but in the synoptic gospels, it, it doesn't actually say where the curtain is. And sometimes because of the public nature of the other signs, the earthquakes, the sun darkening. I mean, this is being reported. It says the centurion saw how Jesus died, so truly this man was the Son of God. Was this somehow a public sign? And Josephus describes a huge curtain, just a gigantic billowing curtain that was visible in the outer courts, and some have suggested this is the curtain that tore. Of course, from the book of Hebrews, the usage there, that seems to refer to the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place, the most holy place in the temple that the that was used once a year for the, the Day of Atonement, the high priest went in, so probably the reference is to that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from even the outer area of the inner sanctuary. But again, in early sources, there's even description of two curtains there. So this is somewhat debated, but in the Synoptic Gospels, it's clear there was a curtain somewhere in the temple, and supernaturally it tore into, and that was seen as a sign authenticating that Jesus' death was, this was something not just of human portent, but that there was something divine going on in Jesus' death that was significant.
0: And it's important for our listeners to be aware as well that part of the reason we can't determine some of this today is because the temple was so thoroughly and yes. completely destroyed yes. in the year 70 A.D. under the General Titus at that point.
2: Yes. If you go there today, of course, there's something on it called the Haram Es Sharif, which people will refer to part of it sometimes as the Dome of the Rock. But it has the Dome of the Rock and the El-Aqsa Kadim and the Marwani Mosque, these various Muslim structures on it. And if you go to the Dome of the Rock in the center— you can still see the fittings in the stone where there was some other structure there, clearly, that was put over it. And you can see the retaining wall around. You can see the stones around the area. You can, if you're able to figure out a way to get underneath, there still is the double and triple entrance under there. So there are remains of it, but yeah, the actual structure where the Holy of Holies was and all that has is, is been wiped off. Is there
1: any evidence in Jewish rabbinic writings that any of these miraculous events really happened?
2: Yes. This is somewhat fascinating, I think. When I was in college at Duke University, (laughs) uh, interestingly, I think back on it, there were a lot of Jewish students who were believers in Jesus at the time, and I think now it never struck me how strange it was. Duke University itself is about 20% Jewish population, if I'm not mistaken, it's a very high Jewish population. I knew one of these guys, he was a graduate engineering student named Aaron Youngris, and he told me, he said, in the Jerusalem Talmud, it says that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, everything in it stopped working. And I was like, man, that's kind of crazy, is that true? And so I thought about it, and later, years later, when I finally had the chance to investigate it, I began looking at some of the citations and other things, and it is, it is rather striking. The Jerusalem Talmud is a collection of Jewish rabbinic sources, rabbi, early Jewish sources that were passed along orally, and then finally written down around 400 AD. But the actual traditions go back hundreds of years, even before the New Testament. It was only preserved by Jews, which is significant, because there's some sources like Josephus that were preserved by Christians, and sometimes it seems they doctored things up to make them a little more theologically agreeable to them. But this is never touched by Christians. And it is striking, I'm gonna read the passage just because I think it's very interesting. Tractate Yoma 6.3, it says 40 years before the destruction of the temple, which would have been around the year A.D. 30, the year that Jesus died, the western light went out, and this was a light that symbolized God's presence. The crimson thread remained crimson. This was a red thread that, according to post-Old Testament tradition, changed white to symbolize God's forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. The lot for the Lord always came up in the left hand, which was obviously seen as inauspicious to have this random thing always coming up in the left hand they would close the gates of the temple by night and get up in the morning and find them wide open and said to the temple, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, O oh, temple, why do you frighten us? We know that you will end up destroyed. And so, again, it's not, it doesn't say the curtain in the temple tore in two, but, but it is striking that the, the timing of this to essentially the time of Jesus' death. They're saying the temple doors are opening on their own, these supernatural events which seem to authenticate God's presence and approval of the sacrificial system. According to the author here, the tradition here ceased working, and we find the same thing in the Babylonian Talmud, we find the same thing in the Midrash Rabbah, we find similar things in Josephus. Josephus speaks of the doors of the temple opening on their own as well. And so it's just striking that you have many early Jewish sources that are saying somehow the temple was scaring us, was not working the way we expected. Things were, seemed to be supernaturally off. And this is even correlated to the year AD 30.
0: Well, What about other sources outside the New Testament? Are there any other sources outside the New Testament that even perhaps suggest some strange happenings or extraordinary events related to the temple at some point after the death of Jesus?
2: Yes, yes, I mean, one of the Josephus is an early Jewish historian. He was actually a contemporary of many of the authors of the New Testament. He was born around the year a d thirty seven He died around one hundred. He's a fun guy to read. I mean, I think he's really interesting. There's so many fascinating pieces of Josephus, but in one section in the Wars of the Jews, he speaks about these different portents that indicated the destruction of the temple was coming soon. He spoke about images of chariots and troops of soldiers in the clouds, a heifer brought for sacrifice that gave birth in the temple, a comet, all these kinds of things, a bright light from the altar. But again, these are not things that are described in the Gospels, but they are seen as supernatural indications to Josephus and some of his contemporaries that... God's judgment was coming on the temple. Probably the closest correlation is he he reports that the massive eastern gate of the inner court would open on its own at night. And that, again, it's not exactly the same, but the idea of a curtain tearing. And it's interesting that when we hear the curtain tearing, we so automatically read that through Hebrews. And I think that's natural. We think oh, access. Now we have access to God. But if you look at the history of interpretation, it's really quite varied as to what this meant. Some people, many people, read it as a God's word of judgment against the temple and the departure of his presence. And so we just need to be careful not to too quickly, I would just call us all to read the text carefully and see what it really says rather than assuming that we know what that text means.
0: We can see that, for example, in the writings of Ephraim the Syrian, who writes in the fourth century in his commentary on the Gospels. He talks about the tearing of the veil in the temple, and he takes it as a sign that God's favor was being taken from the religious leaders in Jerusalem and a sign that the temple would be destroyed. And this is actually fairly typical in the early commentators on these texts among the church fathers. And it also fits really well with Ezekiel chapter 11, where the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, and that glory of the Lord leaving the temple is taken as a portent of the destruction of the temple. So what we've seen today is that sources outside the New Testament no, they don't specifically mention the tearing of the curtain in the temple, but they do mention all sorts of supernatural signs that began happening at this time, at the time of the death of Jesus Christ. And these are not Christian sources. These are reports from outside the Christian communities that report things like doors of the temple opening on their own beginning the very time at the same year that Jesus was crucified and that people began to report that three days later they had seen him raised from the dead. Beginning at that time, The doors of the temple, for example, opening on their own and all sorts of other supernatural signs happening related to the temple in Jerusalem. And in light of that, the claims that the gospel writers make are not at all far-fetched when you think about it. In fact, they actually fit quite well with what we find in other sources outside the New Testament about the temple. Well, once again, we come to the most dangerous portion of the show, which is the Infinity Gauntlet. At this time... We draw from the Infinity Gauntlet one of the great questions that humanity asks, one of the great questions that we struggle to find answers for. And so we reach daringly within the depths of the Infinity Gauntlet and draw forth one of these questions. And so, Garrick, what is the question today?
1: Yes, the question brought to us from the Infinity Gauntlet today is another Marvel versus DC Question, a conundrum, if you will. So here's the question. Which one would win and why? Iron Man or Batman? Mmm. A battle of the billionaires and their fun toys. Wow, this may be the most difficult yet that we've faced. I have no idea. It feels like it would be a draw to me but you do have the whole you know batman is is this is this batman post you know his conflict with superman because if it's post superman conflict then i feel like he's kind of faced a bigger deal than iron man and because of that you know he's not intimidated there's nothing like that so i would i would maybe
2: give the upper hand to batman what do you think rob well, again, I'm no superhero expert here, but I've seen a little bit of Iron Man and Batman. And every time I see Iron Man, he's so cocky and overconfident. And so I have to think in the end, that's going to make him fall, and Batman's going to be able to outsmart him.
0: I think, first off, I, I'm trying to separate this out because I want Batman to win for precisely that reason. Because Tony Stark is a jerk and you just want to see him get beaten down by Batman. But even with that, I think Garrick's on the right track there. So even with all of that, I would still say Batman is going to win because Batman, through his ingenuity, figured out how to defeat Superman. And there's no one much more super than Superman at that point, whereas Iron Man, even on his best day, could not beat Captain America. So let's kind of put those two contests side by side. Captain America, though mighty, is no Superman, and yet Iron Man couldn't beat him but Batman goes up against Superman and finds a way to win. And this is true not only in the big screen travesty that in which he beat Batman, (laughs) but Batman beat Superman. It is also true in the comic books, which are far deeper and better in that. And so I just have to go with Batman, but this one is really hard because I may be biased by the fact that I do not like Tony Stark. Rock and roll its one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why each week in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock. I'm Timothy from the 1970s. And I'm Garrick from the 1980s. Well, all of us feel at some level in some point in our lives that we might call this sense of a loss of innocence, this recognition that the world is more broken than we knew it was, this loss of any delusion that we can go through life without being deeply hurt and deeply stained. And the fact is, as we grow older, we often feel this much more heavily upon us, this sense that the world is broken and this loss of innocence and the fact that we can be deeply hurt and deeply deeply stained throughout our lives by this brokenness. Garrett, can you describe in your own life some examples of what we're talking about here with this loss of innocence?
1: Yeah, without getting into specific depressing details, I, I do remember at a, at a young age, you know, between the ages of five or six till, you know, 10, just being through stuff in my house, through older siblings in the neighborhood and whatnot, just being introduced to some things, seeing, seeing some things, becoming aware of some more adult subject things that just, that kids shouldn't be introduced to. And it profoundly shaped me and affected me for years to come. When thinking back to my childhood, I can point to this just this constant desire feeling to not be in my own home, but to be in certain other homes with certain other families as much as possible.
0: In my own life, I think about a couple of different things that happened around the same time. I think specifically of having a cat that was killed by a dog and that sense of this recognition of how broken the world is, seeing this cat that was that was dead there that this dog had killed. And around the same time, I also remember that my dad took a job as a truck driver, and so he was gone for a week at a time. And this really, as I look back on my life, was the beginning of kind of a, a spiral downward in a lot of ways in my life of this absence of my father for five, six days at a time often. And that sense of that, that sense of abandonment, in that was kind of this loss of innocence, this recognition of how broken the world is and how lonely we can feel. And the truth is that some of the most powerful music that we're aware of, that we remember simply recognizes that deep brokenness of the world. And when that music like that is done well, it awakens within us a longing for the world to be made new. Sometimes the music that has this loss of innocence theme in it is really despairing. I think of Jimi Hendrix's song, Castles Made of Sand, I think of one of the primary ones I think of is The End of the Innocence by Don Henley and Bruce Hornsby. I think of pretty much every song on Rich Mullins' The World As Best As I Can Remember at Volumes 1 and 2, which not only introduces this brokenness of the world and this longing within us, but it gives us a longing for redemption that is fulfilled in Christ at that point. But there's so much of music that at its best can really recognize and awaken the this longing for us for a new world, for something better on the basis of this loss of innocence.
1: The examples I can think of are more, when I become more aware of this, it's not songs that so much explicitly speak of this loss of innocence, as you have mentioned, but actually songs that are talking about the ideal. And then in hearing about the ideal, that's when I become most aware of, yeah, we're not there. This isn't the case and that it's it's in those songs that do that so well. I, I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of a moment where I was sitting in my car. my daughter then probably age three or four is sitting in my lap and John Mayer's daughters comes on the radio and I just, Inexplicably lost it, just broke into tears while I'm singing this song with my daughter, who's entirely unaware of what's going on, sitting in my lap. And it's because I thought of the ideal relationship between daughter and father. I thought of the ideal father, and was, of course, instantly recognized that's not me. And it broke me at that moment.
0: Well, Don McLean first felt this sense of brokenness, this loss of innocence, as a newspaper delivery boy when he was 13 years old in Porchester, New York. And it was on February 3rd of 1959. And he was delivering the newspapers. And as he was delivering these newspapers, he saw the headline on the newspapers he was tossing onto people's front porches. And the headline was, three rock and roll stars die in a plane crash. And those three stars were buddy holly richie valens and an upcoming star named jp richardson who went by the title of the big bopper but february made me shiver with every paper i deliver bad news on the doorstep i couldn't take one more step I can't remember
2: if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day. And so in
0: 1970, 1971, about 12 years after this crash that claimed the lives of three rock stars and the pilot, Don McLean wrote these words that became the song American pie and of course the most famous of those who died in the plane crash was Buddy Holly who we often first associate with those horn-rimmed glasses that he wore but if you look at buddy Holly's life up to this point he was connected to so many people in the early history of rock and roll Elvis Presley he opened for Elvis Presley in 1955 with his band buddy and Bob and the next band after buddy and Bob that buddy Holly was in was called the crickets and that band the crickets their name inspired John Lennon and Paul McCartney to call their band the Silver Beatles and then later simply the Beatles. Uh, Buddy Holly's glasses inspired Elton John to start wearing glasses he didn't need as part of his look. Uh, A few nights before Buddy Holly died, Bob Dylan showed up at one of his shows on this winter dance party tour that they were on. It was like Buddy Holly was the Forrest Gump of early rock and roll. He was connected somehow in the picture with everybody who really mattered in The early history of rock and roll. He was a Texan. He was born in Lubbock,
1: Texas, where I formerly lived for several years of my life. So I've always felt this uh, connection to to Buddy Holly.
0: Is there anything about Buddy Holly in
1: Lubbock, Texas? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a Buddy Holly kind of museum, and it's got a giant—I don't even know what the size is—but but but giant sculpture of horn-rimmed glasses out in front. It's it's fantastic. There's of course streets named after him, and there is a bar called crickets which you know not many people get it but I've always made that connection so
0: and even if you don't care for his music you've got to admit that Buddy Holly came up with amazingly memorable melodies so many of his songs that we can remember very very clearly this will be the day that I die and all these different other ones very very memorable melodies And so in January and February, Buddy Holly and his band embarked on the Winter Dance Party tour, which took them through Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, all these really cold states, but in buses that lacked adequate heating in them. In fact, one band member was even treated for frostbite during this time. And after the February 2nd concert, Buddy Holly wanted to do laundry and get some rest. And so instead of riding one of these buses all the way to their next location that they were playing. At he chartered an airplane in Clear Lake, Iowa, and headed to Minnesota uh, on this airplane. And with him were Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson, the Big Bopper. And on February 3rd, 1959, right after takeoff, the plane crashed, and that day became known as the day the music died.
1: So if we look at some of the lyrics, they can be tied to kind of this history between the plane crash and when McLean wrote the song, right? Yeah,
0: I think that's right. The song kind of retells about a decade of American cultural history through the lens of rock and roll. And, and rock and roll really does begin to change after the death of Buddy Holly. For one thing, it becomes less American with the British invasion. By 1964, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles is the number one song in the United States. And I think that's part of what's going on in the course of American Pie. I drove my Chevy to the levee and the levee was dry. The Chevrolet commercial jingle in the 1950s had been on the highway or along the levee. Life is completer with a Chevy, but he drives his Chevy to the levee and the levee was dry. He drives this American car to the levee and it's dry. This era of distinctly American rock and roll has passed on by. But it's not only that rock and roll becomes less American, rock and roll also becomes more serious. You can see this, for example, in in Bob Dylan, who left rock and roll, went into folk music looking for something that was more serious and more substantive, had some themes of social protest in it and things like that, but then, then in the mid-1960s, he returns to rock and roll and brings some of these themes with him. And of course, in the song American Pie, Bob Dylan is the jester in a coat that he borrowed from James Dean, and it says that he stole the king's thorny crown, seeming to suggest that the mantle of American rock and roll has passed from Elvis, the king of rock and roll, to Bob Dylan. But with these themes of social protest, these more serious themes, also with that, alongside that comes this rise of the new left with this anti-authoritarian And one of the results of that is this rejection of all past values, all past sexual ethics, all past religious assumptions. And we see that in the Beatles, for example, who are exalting very free sexual expression with their song, Why Don't We Just Do It In The Road. They're dabbling in Eastern mysticism, rejecting religious assumptions of the past. And even in their music, they're trying just to push the envelope, push the edge of music, we might say, and produce things that are louder. And more raw than ever before. And we see that, for example, in one song that is mentioned in the song American Pie, and that is the Beatles' song, Helter Skelter. Now in many ways, the Beatles' song Helter Skelter is a, a predecessor, we might say, of heavy metal. In fact, some have called it the proto-metal song. But of course, when in American Pie it says Helter Skelter in the summer swelter, it's not just talking about the song Helter Skelter itself. Uh, the White Album had been taken by a man named Charles Manson as sort of this manifesto with all these hidden images and hidden messages in it. and he Believed that Helter Skelter would be this racial war that he was going to incite in the United States. And so in August of 1969, a young man named Tex Watson murdered at least five people at the instigation of Charles Manson to try to start this racial war that Charles Manson believed was symbolized in the song Helter Skelter. And so what we see in that is that the summer of Woodstock, summer of 69, was not only the summer of Woodstock, but it was also the The summer of Helter Skelter and Charles Manson.
1: What about this line, which has always been one of the most interesting, one of my favorite lines in the song, but I I never really knew what it meant. McLean says, Jack Flash sat on a candlestick. No angel born in hell could break that Satan spell. Well, this refers
0: back to something that is really one of the most important turning points that the song describes, which is, when the Rolling Stones played at the Altamont Free Concert. Now, to understand the Altamont Free Concert, we have to look back a few months before that to Woodstock. Because in the summer of 1969, Woodstock had occurred. And Woodstock was perceived to be this expression of primitivism, of going back to this idea that we can live in perfect harmony and community and peace if we get everybody together in this sort of way. And in fact, people even referred to this Altamont concert as Woodstock West. And so they started planning this in late 1969. So let's kind of set the stage for what happened at Altamont so we can understand these words. Jack Flash sat on a candlestick and then no angel born in hell could break that Satan spell. The Altamont Speedway in California was very very different from Woodstock in terms of the context. Woodstock was this beautiful, you know, field up in upstate New York. And this concert, Altamont, was originally planned to be at the top of a hill. So on top of a hill, they built this very low stage that was going to go on top of a hill. At the last minute, they had to switch the location of the concert and they switched it to Altamont Speedway, which is about 60 miles east of San Francisco, very different context, surrounded by concrete, wrecked cars, garbage, and the stage that had been built low to the ground to go on top of a hill is now sitting where people can just jump easily up onto the stage from the middle of the speedway. Well, the Rolling Stones or some management associated with them asked the Hell's Angels to guard the stage in exchange for five hundred dollars worth of beer, which in 1969, I don't know exactly how much beer that was, but it had to be a lot of beer at that point.
1: And as soon as you bring the hell's angels and a lot of beer into a situation, this idea of keeping the peace of a return to, well, it may still be a return to primitivism, but it's of a entirely different sort. It is more like the real primitivism I think. And it's it's fascinating
0: in that the idea was if we return to this primitivist state distant from society, it will people will become good and community oriented and better. And yet, what we see here is something very different that can happen when we're separated out from that, a much more Lord of the Flies experience than a Garden of Eden experience. And so, on December 6th, 1969, so just a few months after Woodstock, is this Altamont free concert in which the Hells Angels are guarding the stage. There gets to be so much violence before the Rolling Stones even take the stage that the Grateful Dead, who had been part of the initial impulse to do this concert, they refused even to perform. And while the Rolling Stones are performing, there's a young man named Meredith Hunter, who's African-American, 18 years old. He's probably high on methamphetamines. He tries to get on stage and he's, he's pushed back from the stage. Then he pulls out a gun and lifts up a gun. And then he is stabbed to death, by the hell's angels while the stones are singing under my thumb in any dream we might have had of romantic primitivism dies. That primitivism that people were seeking at Woodstock, this longing for the garden that we've talked about before, suddenly it is shattered at that point. And I think Don McLean realizes that there was almost a threshold passed in this of a loss and a breaking of that sort of hippie dream at that point. And that was the Rolling Stones at Altamont playing Under My Thumb as Meredith Hunter breathed his last breaths just a few feet from that stage. And it's it's really a haunting performance. You can almost feel the darkness as you listen to it. And Don McLean, he describes in American Pie this moment as something that was really nothing less than satanic. He says, I saw Satan laughing in delight the day the music died. And beginning with that reference to Altamont, American Pie really does take on a darker and more despairing turn. And that brings us to some of the most interesting and fascinating lines in the entire song. And it's where he says the three men I admired the most, but sets us up to think of Buddy Holly, Richie Valance, the big bopper that those who died on the day the music died. But he says the three men I admired the most, the father the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They took the last train to the coast the day the music died. And most people seem to think that Don McLean is basically saying that God himself had left the building at this point. And that's possible. Maybe that is what he's saying. But I think there's another way to understand these words in American Pie. Here's what I think that Don McLean is actually saying. That the era of rock and roll that Buddy Holly and Richie Valance and the Big Bopper represented had in some sense been his God. They were his holy trinity but by the end of the 1960s at altamont it had become clear that none of these gods of our own creation could ultimately bring us peace and salvation youth culture and protests and the rise of the new left all of these things had failed to solve humanity's deep and awful brokenness and that was part of the loss of innocence that don mclean was describing when he wrote this song I find it fascinating to read a first-hand account of Altamont from Todd Gitlin, a young man who was there, left before the Rolling Stones actually took the stage, and here's what he wrote. He said, By the time I left in the late afternoon on that day, Altamont already felt like death. Stoned fans were crawling over one another just to get a bit closer to the groovy music. The effect was to burst the bubble of youth culture's illusions about itself. We had witnessed the famous collectivity of a generation cracking into thousands of shards. And so what had really happened in this era that Don McLean looks back on it, it started with such optimism with John F. Kennedy campaigning and winning the election on the basis of a new frontier, laws that would eliminate injustice and inequality. What had really happened in this era? Well, there's sort of a dream, we might say, that had emerged in the 1960s of do your own thing, tune in, turn on, drop out, exist, exist in peace and harmony and community, return to a romantic primitivism that was prior to nations and ownership and any restrictions on sexual expression. And if we do that, we can find perfect peace and harmony. But what we find instead is exactly what humanity has found out over and over throughout its history that the forces that bring evil and injustice are not merely external forces, they are internal, we are depraved, we are sinful, and even when we try to divest ourselves of all the things that we believe are causing the things in life that are bad, that there's an evil within us that comes out. There's an evil and a depravity within us, and we need a savior beyond ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't work for justice and equality and righteousness here and now. It does mean that we will only be able to do those things imperfectly, but we do them with the knowledge and the belief that God will one day do perfectly what we can only do imperfectly. But we need a savior outside of ourselves. I actually think Don McLean sort of understood that. And here's why I say that. In 2015, there were 18 pages of handwritten notes that were auctioned off for something like $1.2 million that were Don McLean's notes in which he was developing the song, American Pie. And it didn't originally end with the words that we're familiar with at the ending of the song. Here's how the song originally ended. And I fell down to my knees and promised all I have to give, if only he would make the music live, and the music was reborn. I fell down to my knees, I prayed, and I asked that the music could live again, and the music was reborn. At some level, Don McLean recognized that we cannot achieve all that we long for in our own power, says, I fall down to my knees and ask that the music live again. Now, I don't know what his personal values were, but I do know this. There is imprinted on his soul an awareness and on every human soul an awareness that we need a savior that is outside of ourselves. And that loss of innocence that we've talked about, that we all feel at different times, what it ultimately is, is a clash within us between the way things are and the way our souls know that things ought to be.
2: Bad news on the doorstep
0: I couldn't take one more step I
2: can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day. The new.
0: Now is the time in our program where we recommend some different resources that we think would be helpful to you to explore these issues further. And there are a couple of things that I would like to recommend. One of them is an article by Rob Plummer called Something Awry in the Temple. It's in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society back in 2005. And it's an article on exactly what we've talked about today. And you can go ahead and Google that. And if you Google the, the name of that article and Rob's name, you can come up with a PDF free of charge to download of that. Also, Dan Gertner has written an article called The Veil of the Temple in History and in Legend that is also in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. And you can also search for that one and find that one free of charge. So are there any other resources when people are looking for topics, trying to understand how the New Testament fits in history that you go to, Rob, when you're looking for or searching for some ways that the New Testament and history fit together? What do you look at as a New Testament scholar?
2: Well, I think I would recommend to people, I mean, there have never been better resources available. If someone's really interested in history and, and maybe the Zondervan Archaeological Study Bible, something like that, because there's a constant, you know, sort of running commentary, and it'll have have little sidebars and notes about, look, we, ha- we know where this is now, we know where Hezekiah's tunnel is, here's this picture, we, here's, a, here's an inscription that, that confirms that this battle happened, and our own Dwayne Garrett, Dr. Garrett here at Southern Seminary, was the editor of that. So I, I think that's a great resource. If anyone else wants to know more about Dr. Rob Plummer, whom we are
1: thankful for joining us today, then you can check out his website at dailydoseofgreek.com.
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future, or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. If you want to dig deeper into apologetics, one great place to start is the book Reasons for Our Hope by Wayne House and Dennis Jowers. The book is Reasons for Our Hope, and you can go to bhacademic.com today to download a free sample chapter.